HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Tabard Inn, new American cuisine in one of Washington, D.C.'s oldest hotels, located in DuPont Circle. For more information, visit tabardinn.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to The Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest is author and journalist John Bonet. We'll talk to John about his new book, The New Wine Rules, a genuinely helpful guide to everything you need to know. Instead of our weekly wine sip this week, we'll speak with Stephen Bitteroff from Riesling Fair in New York City for a few minutes. I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for The Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. John Bonet is an award-winning author and journalist. He is a senior contributing editor for Punch, an online mag- magazine featuring wine, spirits, beer, and cocktails. He is the former wine editor of the San Francisco Chronicle. John is the author of The New Wine Rules, his current book, and The New California Wine. He's working on his next book, the new French wine. John currently lives in New York City, but he's been spending a heck of a lot of time in France. I could tell from your Instagram. Quite a lot. Yes. John, welcome back to the show. It's great to have you. It's great to see you, Sam. And on a side note, this is the first show of our new season, and it's great to kick it off with John. Um, all right, John, let's get right into the book and a whole bunch of things. So you've, you've written countless articles in print, online. You wrote a book about California, and you're working on a new one about French wine. What compelled you to write 
and everything you need to know guide to wine or however you would right. describe the genre because your books are pretty intense and this is too but it's different the genre of book that i that i swore i would never write and right. it certainly doesn't need another added to it uh there were a few things what really triggered it was uh, my wife and I were uh, were having lunch at a restaurant in San Francisco, uh, a pretty well-known one with a great wine list, and we're sitting there, and she she's a wine importer and, and distributor, and she very knowledgeable. Know, knows a lot more than I do. So uh, we're sitting there, and we're watching this table of obviously uh, professional, very successful women, late 20s, early 30s, and they're sort of there, they're struggling to, to get through the wine list. They're not getting a lot of help. And we, we, this started a conversation between us where we, we said, you know, there's, this, this isn't, this isn't like super basic. These are folks who are obviously really accomplished and they, uh, they, they, you know, it's not that they don't want to know more about wine. They're not stuck in like a Pinot Grigio hole. They're, they're curious, but, but no one has given them real useful guidance. And, and, and I knew enough about the, the universe of most basic wine books out there to, to not love most of the ones that were, that had been produced to date. And I felt like they all kind of go through this paint by numbers thing of, well, here's Merlot and here's Sauvignon Blanc and here's Chianti and Bordeaux and whatever. It's, you know, it's, it's this, this taxonomy of wine that's, that's like 40, 50 years old uh, and doesn't really apply if you, if you go to, to the top restaurants now uh, and, and look for wines to drink, you, you, you reasonably, you could have, you could have read a lot of, you know, sort of introductory wine stuff and feel like you were drowning. And so this started a conversation saying, you know, I've, I've now done this 15 years or so. I've obviously written a lot. I write usually, like you said, at a pretty high level and lose a lot of people along the way, many, and if not most of them. And, you know, I, I, I'm comfortable with, with, with my knowledge and my expertise and where I write, but at the same time, is there some way that I can take kind of the way that I think about wine, you know, if the, the mapping of my brain, my wine brain, and, and put it out in a book that, that tries to do this, this sort of important task for the wine industry in a totally different way. And then we, we started talking about it with, with 10 Speed, uh, which is my publisher, and, and they had some ideas and some thoughts, and I did too, and we ended up with an amazing illustrator, Maria Hergetta, who um, does most of my column illustrations. Beautiful illustration. Yeah, she, she did such an extraordinary job. Uh, and, 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 and Tenspeed's really amazing designer, and, and I felt that we, we, we got this unique opportunity to go at, again, a really important task in, in a totally different way. So... If you could, when you're looking at those women at that restaurant, if you can get the book now in their hands, then they would have felt more comfortable. Maybe. In the room, maybe. Maybe. Certainly. I, I, I think so. I, I mean, think, I read the book. Yeah. So I, I, I think yeah. that's where you were going. I think, you know, like there's a lot of Rieslings on that list. And, and I think that they would have felt maybe more comfortable about the idea that there was wine with 
maybe a tiny bit of sweetness, but not something that was going to, not something that was going to degrade their drinking experience. Not something that was going to come across as oh, you're now you're drinking sweet wine, so it can't be good. Right. So yes, hopefully there were there were a few rules out of that that would have been right. useful. So the book is broken down in eight different sections. And you lay down 89 rules, if I counted them correctly. 89. Why not an even number 88 and why not 90? We'll talk about that another time. All right, so that's the way the book is. Eight different sections, you know, with different specialties, and there's rules that roll on to the end. All right, so let's get into it. The first thing, which I thought was very interesting, is it was sort of a very simplistic thing, and I want you to expand on it. You say two things, drink with joy nice thing to say, and drink the rainbow. Yeah. Talk to me about, you know, what you mean. Sure. I mean, drink, drink with joy is, I wouldn't say it's self-evident because it's endlessly complex, but I think the idea was that what that comes from, both in the introduction and in, in Drink the Rainbow, which is rule number one, and it's rule number one because it's my favorite, I'll be honest. Uh, is You'll that, get into why? In yeah, a is, is that is that so much of again the past few decades, really generationally, so much of the the growth of the modern American wine industry has been based on consumers who act out of fear. They don't they don't wander. They're not exploratory. And and this isn't this isn't. I, I'm not saying this prejudicially. I don't. I, this isn't this isn't sort of throwing shade on people for for not not being more curious, I, I think there's good reason that people aren't more curious, or I should say haven't been more curious. Uh, and, and if you look at the psychographic studies that, that even big wine companies do, they're very clear that, you know, maybe 20 to 30% of the population, of the wine drinking population, is going is to wander a little bit in their choices. But so much of the past, you know, half century in wine in this country which is when wine became a household thing, was driven out of fear. People drank Chardonnay. They stuck with Chardonnay. Maybe if you were really lucky, you could get them to switch to Pinot Grigio. Maybe if you made <laughs> wow. a movie about Pinot Noir, you might get everyone to dump Merlot and right. go, go drink Pinot instead. But there were just, tectonically, people weren't, pe- pe- people stuck, sort of stayed in their hole. And so Drink With Joy was more than anything, and Drink the Rainbow too, which I'll get to in a sec, was was saying you know let let's put that in the past and let's say let let's acknowledge that there's this world out there that's curious and once you get past the fact that there are some gatekeepers who don't want to make it easy for you to to gain not expert knowledge but just enough knowledge to feel okay navigating that there's so many interesting things out there there's so many interesting flavors there's so many interesting producers and regions and and the idea that you should drink wine out of a sense of sort of loyalty and timidity just doesn't work anymore, uh, which takes us to, br- to drink the rainbow. And the idea there was, you know, again, you have this taxonomy of wine. We, we see it on wine lists. We see it in stores, whatever you have red, you have white, maybe you have some bubbles, but, but it's, it's all put into buckets. And the idea of drink the rainbow is basically taking eat the rainbow, uh, which uh, I was looking at a lot of health books when I was trying to put together the outline for this and say, you know, in, in the world of wine, the same thing should apply. There's too much diversity now. There's orange wines, there's cherries and all sorts of oxidative process wines. There's, there's, uh, amphorae, there's, you know, all shades of rosé, there's pet nat. There's so many different 
ways that there, there's so many different forms of wine versus like the three old buckets that you have to think of it on on a continuum or I guess a spectrum, which of course is a rainbow. And so it became this idea of saying, you know, stop thinking I got to have a red, I got to have a white and just be curious enough to say, well, you know, maybe I can look for the things in between the old categories. Right. And I may be jumping ahead, but two of the ways you talk about that in the book is to befriend a local wine guy at a good store and he'll help you explore the rainbow and sommeliers, which could be a whole nother subject, who they are, where they're at today. But most of them are there to serve you. If you ask them for interesting things, they'll explore and show you the rainbow. Yeah. And, and I think there's a, there's a, uh, there's a fear factor there, maybe even more so with retail because people Typically, it, it takes a lot to get people into a small local wine shop. And especially in New York, it's kind of a roll of the dice. There's amazing shops, but there's also, I mean, because of the licensing, right. there's a lot of basically vodka shops yeah. with some wine. Right. So it's like, it's, you know, it, it's like finding a good independent bookstore. It's, it's finding someone who wants to help you on the journey and, you know, as a side benefit, might make some money for right. it. Right. I think that's an important relationship. And certainly New York houses enough of those places. Yeah. Um, I think you talk about value and quality a lot in the book. You know, when you talk about value, you don't necessarily mean cheap, but, you know, there are good wines at good prices. Um, I have a bunch of questions I want to talk to you about that. You say that white wine is the best value. Why? It, it usually is. Uh, it, mostly because, well, one, it's uh, people just Typically, unless you're a real Burgundy hound. Right, a Montrachet yeah, guy or unless, something. Unless you, yeah, unless you're doing Poligny on the daily. <laughs> right. Um, you, you know, typically people won't pay as much for white wine, and so uh, people have started to think that it's a simpler wine, which I don't tend to believe. It's just, it doesn't, I mean, some of it is just very uh, practical. It doesn't require as much uh, as much money or time in production. Uh, typically cheaper to make yeah you, you lower can, price to sell yeah well you, you can do it you can do it without barrels you don't have to age it necessarily as long you can but uh, but the production is a little less cost intensive people won't pay for it as much and the revolution in white wine making quality in the past 25 years is extraordinary and so whereas it used to be well you know we'll drink some like simple frescati whatever right. it is now you see even in what we're thought of as simple uh, regions and categories, there's extraordinary craft. My point, you know, the values there, the quality is amazing, and you would agree the diversity. Unbelievable. I mean, in Italy alone, in France, there's a zillion different white wines. Um, you talk about wines in the book that over-deliver. Um, get a little specific with me. Tell me what you mean by over-deliver and give me some examples of, you know, wines that over-deliver. Sure. Uh, over-deliver simply being that, that the wine essentially outdrinks its price to, 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 to our point about, about white wine. White, right. And, uh, my, my, my quintessential example for this is Muscadet, which used to be this, this cheap kind of no second thought White wine, you know, is nice enough with oysters. This has been made in the far western Loire in Loire. France, uh, and the 
the level of winemaking that has risen there, in addition to probably 20, 25 years of, of work by the local Appalachian to, to do geological studies, to understand specific sub-regions and sub-terroirs in, in Muscadet, and the, the rise of organics, all of these, these things that, that are key to transforming a wine region have happened, and yet the wines are still $15, $18, if that. And Food this, friendly. Yeah. Uh, and this great is, producers now. Yeah. And this is with a this is with a weak dollar. So you're like, well, here's this wine that if you can get past what we used to think about it, uh, has completely transformed itself. Same with Beaujolais, which is completely transformed. Is itself. Beaujolais the red that over delivers? One of the reds? It, it is. Say? It's 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 getting tougher because right. because the best wines have gotten more expensive, but right. uh, this Beaujolais was always the example. And I, the first time I was really writing about the changes in Muscadet, I said it's it's an imperfect analogy, but it's kind of the white wine equivalent to Beaujolais in that these are wines that just suffered from a bad reputation for too long. Right, they've they've really come around. Um, places and regions worth exploring. I mean, we could probably do a show on that. How much but time I mean, you got? but you get into a few places so. Top of mind, off your head, you know, worth talking about, you know, what should people look towards? Uh, you know, it always depends what, what, what you're looking for in wine, but I think uh, the Loire Valley, that's not a surprise. That's always right. been... Uh, that's where it, Muscadet comes from. It is where Muscadet comes Chenin from. Blanc. Yeah, but it's but it's you see that it's it's really moved out of the realm uh, like the Anjou, which uh, was known for so long as this place for kind of cheap sweet rosé. And uh, you know, as one one producer there said, the '70s were basically fueled on Anjou rosé, on bad bad rosé right. from here, uh, and has now become the the font of of really interesting natural winemaking. Uh, but you know. Basic Bordeaux is coming back. I think if you look in regional Italy, uh, you still see. I mean, there's still great Chianti being produced from organic farming producers. If you if you look for them, northern Italy, you find great Bartolino. Uh, you find great stuff out of northern Spain and Galicia. If you get kind of beyond the Riospicious Albariños, and even there, you find there's a step up in quality. Uh, you see Australia, which we not long ago were all making fun of for right. critter labels. It's sort of come back. Australia. Has, has has revolutionized uh, the same way that California did. Right. Uh, and so it's, you know, I think you see in a lot of quarters, except for f- the very few where there's a lot of economic pressure to against change. But even there... What would be an example? Napa? Uh, Napa's, Napa's always the example. Right. But Burgundy, and, and especially especially with, yeah, with the Burgundy. run of short vintages. I mean, I, I love Burgundy, and actually it is a place that has truly transformed itself, but most people legitimately are not going to be able to find out because the wines are in, they're truly in short supply, uh, and they have gotten expensive. Uh, but, you know, there's, ev- ev- I think everywhere you turn, uh, once you get past, you know, this the flavor of the month thing that, that most wine writers occasionally, including myself, like to do, uh, and you dig a little harder, I think, you know, Chile, which I hadn't really paid attention to for years, suddenly you're seeing all of this Pais and the Pipeño wines, these, these right. this revival of the Different old Different than classic. Carmenier and, and Cabernet. Yeah, and, and people seeing, you know, th- this is... These, this is one of the oldest wine growing regions uh, in the in the in the certainly in the New World, uh, and and people are going back with a sense of artisanship. So, uh, you know, you you can almost 
throw a dart at the map and find No, you mentioned seven, eight, nine, you know, interesting places. And I'll post that on our social media. One of the interesting things I thought you mentioned was that there are good finds and good values with wines that have fallen out of favor. So what is a wine that's fallen out of favor? I mean, it may be obvious, but tell me. And and tell me a few, you know, yeah. that are good to look for. I mean, Chianti is my perfect example where... It used to be everybody would get right. it in and a it's restaurant. Still, it's interesting because for all of the progress that Italy has made, uh, it's, it's possible to find really interesting Chianti, but like... I think people face this question of, am I going to put this on my dinner table if I'm having friends over? I would because I don't care. And I, <laughs> I, you know, I like it and I'm happy to drink it. But, right. but I think that there are, there are wines where people have a perception problem. I think White Zinfandel, there's this handful of people in California who took, said, essentially just took the original idea of White Zinfandel, which was a high-quality dry rosé, right. and decided to go back to that. Um, what else? I mean... You know, Muscadet is not uncool anymore, but right. but Merlot certainly still is, and it's interesting. We just we just did a bunch of Bordeaux tasting, and you find that uh, there's a ton of really good right bank wines that are now again. You see good farming, a lot of organic farming. You see not the kind of old cheap industrial winemaking, but people really trying to make good, solid, uh, unmessed with, largely Merlot. Uh, that that even after producing it, putting it on a boat, and getting it here still is under $15 a bottle. Which is crazy. Um, we're talking to John Bonet. John's new book is The New Wine Rules. I tried to wrestle with this question because you made a point that if wine is too cheap, it's not too good. And if you pay a certain amount, you know, you may overpay. And I think I got it where the sweet spot you sort of guided me to is somewhere around... 20 bucks for a reasonable wine. Um, Is that fair? You know, why not less? Why not more? I'd say 15 to 20. 15 and, to and 20? It's, you know, it's it's something that, that we don't tend to think about in, in the U.S. because we're a little bit removed from the market. But, you know, the... The, the global varia- variation of the dollar does have an impact on this. So what was, you know, $15 one year, maybe $17 the next right. year. Uh, and we expect that it's not going to change. And honestly, producers, uh, mostly European producers, are under a lot of price pressure. But yeah, I think, I think 15 to 20. And essentially what you see is... Good quality wines. Well... At Good fi- wine at, at fifteen, at thirteen to fifteen. Well, I mean, eight dollars, seven dollars. You stay struggling. away, right? You you can find can. good things. It's it's a challenge. You can ten to fifteen ish is where a lot of the really industrial corporate wine lives. They've tried to push it up a little bit. Maybe they want a premium, etc. But if you think about, I mean, their suggested retails higher. But if you think about what you're legitimately paying for, like a bottle of Kendall Jackson Chardonnay, that's kind of where it is. And so. There's not a lot of purpose to competing in that realm, whereas 15 to 20, it's a little bit more money, and it's where you see a lot of really talented producers um, either making basic wines from more well-known regions or making really very high-quality wines from lesser-known regions, and almost any really solid producer worth their salt outside of, again, like, you know, the, the Burgundians who who somewhat painfully have had to make their their basic wines more expensive, you see that there's there is that sweet spot. Really, it's shocking hasn't changed in probably almost a decade. Really, really. Um, 
So I guess if you go into a good wine store that, you know, we talked about earlier, you know, one of their challenges and I think their interest and love is to be able to turn you on to those wines in that price range. And earlier you had mentioned Muscadet, which is a terrific wine right in that price range. Um, so the point is, is, you know, with all these hoity-toity wines and everything, you could drink some delicious and interesting wines in that price range. And, and they want you to walk out with a bottle of wine for dinner that night. And I think they all retailers kind of know that, you know, if you'll spend maybe up to 20 bucks. If, if you're not going to spend more than $10, there's nothing to talk about. Right. But between 10 and 20 it's all a little bit fungible. And if they can make the case that you're going to have a great, great experience I mean, this is my job, your job, everyone's job. If you can make the case they're gonna, you're, someone's gonna have a great experience for eighteen dollars instead of fourteen dollars, then right. there is that that portion of people who will take the leap. You have most people's attention for four bucks more if you could really turn them on to something exactly. interesting. All right, acidity. Acidity, you said, might be the most important quality in a wine. I mean, it's a pretty bold statement in a book. Sure. Why? Well, people focus on flavors. And this is fruity. This is fruity. This, is this tastes not like even cherries, dry, sweet, but cher- all those right. descriptors. So it's uh, this isn't even me. This is from years ago. I think this is a Lawrence Osborne book um, where he said, you know, how many red wines taste like cherries? All of them. Okay. So you know, you you look for you look for the little curly cues that give you an indication as to why one wine is special or or another. But in the in the macro sense, we do a lot of splitting hairs. And we don't talk really ever about acidity. And the reason, and and having uh, spent a portion of January doing uh, doing dry January, it became very clear to me when I was trying to have dinner without wine. Acidity, <laughs> and, and the reason people talk so much about having wine on the table is that acidity helps to, 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 to clear and rebalance your palate. And acidity is legitimately, it is the most distinctive quality in a wine. And it is the one that even if you're not picking up all the fruit flavors, you know, the fruit salad, you can tell if a wine has a lot of acidity or not much. What, what would you tell people how they detect acidity? With white wine, to me, it's easier. You know, you feel, you feel it even more, you know, whether it's a little tingle or I know I'm being base, but give me your I mean the the nice thing is that acidity is a is a quality that I, I feel like I don't even have to define, which is to say the same thing that that your mouth does if you're if you're tasting vinegar. That's if you're it. tasting fresh citrus you know it and you yeah. react to it it's, in I a mean, way. I mean it's the reason that we that we that we that we squeeze lime into our soda right is we There's want we want we want more acidity and vinegar with olive oil for yeah. a salad and it's you know look there's a subset of people possibly including um the current leader of the free world whose taste in beverages might be questionable <laughs> um uh who will like drink a milkshake with a hamburger um but at some point you stop and you're like you know this actually isn't that that pleasant. It's maybe nice as an indulgence, but in general, people like Coke with a hamburger with pizza with all sorts of Coke's things. Coke's got a little acidity. Coke's right? got quite a lot of acidity. It right. also has the other aspect. The other Which thing is why people... it's so good with food, right? And and yet it's where people are obsessed with Coke is the sugar. And it's funny because everyone's fine drinking a super sweet, incredibly high acid, like higher acid than most Rieslings drink. 
when they go to McDonald's and they have a Big Mac, and yet if you put it into a wine cocktail, these are things that, that seem to freak a lot of people out. So I think it's an important quality, and I think people experience it but sometimes don't realize it, which is what sort of makes the wine, you know, good, good with food. And it's something in cooking, honestly, that, that until, until really the, the past few years – People weren't talking a lot about the, the role of acidity um, in cooking as well, and yet it's the thing that, that really does balance a dish. Yeah, I agree. Uh, this is a big subject, and I know we could probably spend a show on it, but I don't want to, but I need to talk to you about it because I know it's important to you. You talk about it in the book, and I guess the question is why. I want your views on organic, biodynamic, and sort of the current wine movement. You don't have to explain what organic and but. It's really, the movement is really here. I mean, Brooklyn is, I always say, ground zero. You walk into any wine bar or wine store, it's basically natural. Um, Tell me what's going on with that. You talk about it in the book. Sure. I mean, you don't don't want to go too far in dictating uh, the choices that people as farmers make in order to make a living, uh, especially as some guy who lives in New York City. On the other hand, you know what? I kind of do in that... There is a certain relatively small section, of, subset of, of viticulturists, of people who are growing wine grapes, who, who have a case to be made that they just, the numbers don't work on, on using full organics, it's just not going to be sustainable. You can have a reasonable discussion about that in a very small number of cases, but in a much larger number of cases, there is no reason that people can't opt to essentially get rid of synthetics. And almost every argument that I have ever heard people make about why not to farm organically, biodynamics is a different thing. People want to opt in, that's more great. More intense. But, yeah, yeah but, but certainly in terms of organics, I mean, we all understand why people opt for organic food instead food of vegetable. conventional food. Right. And so you can, you can make a, you can have a, a, an internal debate with yourself as to whether you want to pay more for organic broccoli or not, but we're not talking about sustenance. I, I think you would be hard-pressed to find someone whose who's calories in life come from wine. This is, this is <laughs> in one way or another, um, this is a small luxury. It's something that makes life better. And I think if people are going to make a choice about, uh, about, the the level of farming that they want um, and the level of virtue in that farming, it's one thing to do it uh, with food, and I think it's important generally to do it with food, but certainly with wine, if, you, if you're not at least thinking about it, then you're not completing the loop, and this was something I talked about in, in, the, in the California book, actually, right. which is, you know, people go to a store like Whole Foods and they obsess about, you know, that it has to be, the beef has to be grass-fed, grass fed, the broccoli or the carrots or whatever have to be organic, and they go to the wine shop, the wine aisle, and they just pick up the, the garbage-iest, worst-farmed wine there is right. because it's never been made clear that you have to make those, those conscious choices there as well. And I wouldn't, I think, be as, as much of a nudge about it if I didn't constantly, even today, hear people tell me that there are regions where you can't farm organically, there are too many uh, obstacles. There, people are still saying this, for instance, in Champagne, where it is now probably 30, 40 years that people have farmed organically, they farm biodynamically. Roterer farms most of their vineyards right. biodynamically. The big guys have changed over. Yeah, so... 
so same in Bordeaux, you see you see uh, you someone like Latour, someone like Chateau Palmer now farming organically. Palmer's biodynamic, like legit biodynamic, and you're like, well. You know, if if they Rudolf can do Steiner it, dyna- biodynamic. No, they they they're a little more flexible than okay. hardcore Steiner, I right. think. But 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 you know, but I I believe they are certified, and right. uh, and I think it's one of those things where you're like, well, you know, if they can do it, and certainly they're not hurting for money, then why aren't their neighbors? Why isn't Lafitte? Why isn't Mouton? Why aren't these pla- these places that make a ton of money and have no no obstacle to doing better. Why are they still using the same arguments? Right. Why are they not reinvesting? So that's point one. I mean, the first point is the farming should be done that way. But you could do that and then kind of screw it up in the cellar. So the next step is, you know, similar practices in the cellar. Low intervention, no chemicals, no screwing around. Same thing, right? Yeah, and again, I, I think it's important to understand winemakers' decisions in a context, which is to say, if I said no sulfur ever, no filtration ever, no acidification ever, no uh, no fil- you know no filtration ever, uh, you know you you people people like absolutes, but the difficulty is that there is reasonable decision making and there's a slippery slope, and. You know, I can forgive a lot of reasonable decision making when I understand the context of why someone might have done something that wasn't absolutely pristine and perfect. But it is from there a quick hop to the slippery slope of saying, you know what, we make we're chefs and we make reasonable decisions about how we want to guide the wine, and we're we need a we need our full pantry of techniques to to create the wine we want. And it's like, well, that's that's <laughs> not what this is about. This was about you growing good grapes. And making the wine that reflects the quality of what you picked, and you know it's. I mean, like it. It is much easier as a critic to believe in absolutes, but the absolutes are always, always fall through. Right. Um, so the movement is here. It's real. Um, it continues to get bigger and more influential and I think to your point more and more people who aren't will and that's a good thing right yeah I, and again I think uh, you know and th- this goes to natural wine this goes to, to to a wide spectrum of things to me in some ways it's less about saying this can this has to be this this can never be that than it is asking detailed really specific questions about the process. Right. Because it's, again, it's all a little uncomfortable. And I think one of the reasons natural wine has really boomed is like people have finally gotten to a place, to my point about fear, where they're starting to feel confident enough that they want to ask those questions. Right. And that, you know, that is, it has many imperfect ways that it manifests itself. But the fact that the questions are there to me is so important. Right. Um, let's change subjects. We're huge fans here at the Grape Nation for champagne. We've Everyone covered, should be. Right, which is why I want to talk about it a little. Peter Lean was just on at the end of the year. David White was on earlier in the year. Alice Payard came on, one of the few female winemakers. Whenever we do the wine list and talk to sommeliers and guests, champagne comes up very often. Um, you mentioned in the book that it's misunderstood which we've talked about on this show. I mean, the, the biggest thing is it's celebratory. But 
why is it misunderstood and and you know why should we pay more attention to champagne I think Peter could answer that question better. He, than, he did, better but than me, I mean, but, you cover it in the but, book, but, and but, uh, to stay with the book, yeah, you know, it's a section. Yeah, it, I mean, I think something that a lot of people have talked about, and this is the this is the thesis of Peter's book, which is extraordinary. This was in here. This will be in the new French wine. This is something I've talked about. Other people have for a long time. Is that you know, it, it's not just growers, which are people who obviously are you know. They're growing the champagne grapes that they then produce uh, versus big houses. That's that's there. It's important, but you know, it's things have evolved beyond that debate. It's really that champagne, for the first time, maybe ever, uh, is being considered as a wine, which is to say, people see it's not just one big region. There are subregions. There are different expressions. There are different grapes. There are so many different ways to make it. And to my, my point about asking questions, that once you get beyond what champagne was until recently, which was you know mostly marketing hype, and you start digging in, and you get past the thing of well, we just we make we make appropriate decisions when blending because we want the style to be. I mean, all the house the, style. the complete crap that people have been pushing on us for years. You see that there is this extraordinary diversity in champagne, unlike anything we've ever seen and so yeah i mean some of it is getting beyond celebration and realizing that it is it is a fun wine to drink it's really lovely it is to my point about affordable luxuries it is really something that you can get into for certainly under 50 dollars and have you know a nice bit of pleasure added to right. your week basically the cost of two movie tickets right uh and good point yeah and 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 it's um, and it's now something that you can legitimately see is is coming from real people, not just from a brand. They come, they it comes from real people. It's made in real places, and you can you can explore the diversity of it. And that's something that again, like was was barely even talked about fifteen years. I, I think you made a good point. I mean, we all forget that champagne, the base of champagne, is wine. And how it was treated, blended, house styles, you know, consistent taste through the years. There are a lot of people that go back to what we talked about, the farming practices, um, the blends now. You know, there's basically three grapes. I mean, the Peter mentioned it too. The game in the last 10, 15 years, the transformation, you know, has been crazy. And people should look at it more that way and like you said yeah it could still be a celebratory thing and it's not expensive and it's a luxury thing but it's a different better product now yeah um and it pairs well with food which is a nice thing um we're gonna take a quick break i still have a bunch of questions for you um i think we may be able to squeeze in a second version of our wine list so we're talking to john bonnet and we're talking about his new book, The New Wine Rules, and we'll be right back, and we're going to talk more about the book. The following program has been brought to you by Tabard Inn. Tabard Inn, Washington, D.C.'s quintessential small hotel, is located on a quiet, tree-lined street just five blocks from the White House. Vibrant yet unassuming, the Tabard is comprised of 40 sleeping rooms, each unique in character and design. Feast on eclectic American cuisine in their acclaimed restaurant or enjoy a cocktail and listen to live jazz in one of their cozy Victorian seating areas. Mingle with travelers from around the world who find the Tabard the only place to stay when taking their travels to Washington. For more information, visit tabardin.com. We're back. We're back with my guest, John Bonet. 
And we're talking about his new book, The New Wine Rules, which is currently, it was just released at the end of last year. And John, it's available, I guess, everywhere. Amazon, Better Bookstores. We'll remind people at the end of the show, too. Um, There were two things I want to cover, and maybe we could jump into our uh, wine list. One is uh, wine and food pairing, which is one of my uh, wineless questions. But you get into it pretty heavily. I think you have four rules on how you approach wine and food pairing. Let's go over them quickly. So, again, people shouldn't be intimidated or have a fear. What do I do with wine and food? What's the best way to sort of demystify that? Hmm. I, I, I think, yeah, I mean, I, th- I, I think the big rule is basically that, you know, yes, pairings are great. It's lovely if you find things that go together. But, uh, but it's funny for a rule book to say this, obviously, but uh, there are, frankly, there have been built up all of these rules, which may or may not work, but I think which over time have scared the hell out of people. And... You know, there's as much as I like the notion that flavors can find a harmony. I also think that it needs to be said by by educated wine people, by experts that you know, don't worry about it. Drink drink a thing that you like. It might not be the thing that I would drink, but it doesn't matter what I would drink. So screw the white wine and fish thing. Well, That's not a rule. In, it's in, fine, in, but... In, in part because I can come up with five, six ways to disprove it, as I say in the book. You know, if you haven't had sushi with red burgundy, you've missed out. Right. Uh, the other thing, and, and I, and to me, this in some ways is, is almost the more most important of the rules, um, is that... You know, wine pairing rules, as we talked of them, uh, talk about them, were essentially developed entirely out of Western and really Western European culture, and so, and and by that, I mostly mean French and a little Spanish, a little Italian. Um, so we we talk about this as a thing that is done, as though this entire universe of flavors and cuisines and cultures hasn't also come into our daily lives, and so, uh, so you know, you you. You, you you try to you try to talk about pairings and the, the the language that we have to talk about pairings in some ways has really been bound by um, by a culture that is only a small portion of our overall culture now and so you have to think in terms of how how wine works with flavors that originated in cultures where they might not drink wine right and and I think when you think about that when you think about the you know the the flexibility that you can and should have this thing that you know was used to be what what people did which is you'd have a little pairing box next to a recipe and said you know right. we have to have you know you have to have a uh, a centimillion or maybe you have to have this specific right. centimillion i think it, it was driving people crazy right we shouldn't be so stuck to that I think a good segue, because a wine and food pairing is a pretty common thing in restaurants. I think when you go out to eat, you usually look for good wine. You don't drink wine every night you cook at home. Um, You get into wine, wines, and wine service at restaurants. And I think that fear and intimidation thing carries through, too, with big wine lists, sommeliers. Um, So talk about you know, how you should approach that when you get into a restaurant. Um, you take a knock at, I wouldn't say a knock at sommeliers, but, you know, they're there to help you. 
Um, yeah, I actually, I actually thought in in the restaurant portion, I I, I did my best to defend their their yeah, honor and I, virtue. That's my bad. Um, but 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 I uh, think I read a separate article yeah, where yeah, long in the past. Let's leave uh, that behind. They're but, there to. But but no, I I think you 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 reach a decision. You reach a realization very quickly when you go to a restaurant Which as to whether whether the staff there could be the sommelier, could be your server, could be a manager, whoever, whether they want to help you with your wine or not. And there there are always going to be places where they're not trained enough. It's not the focus. But of, do I know that as the consumer or I, I think you do. I think you should be able to realize it's sort of like yeah. a good and a bad waiter. Yeah. And, and this yeah. guy's great, this guy sucks. Exactly. The wine guy has similar qualities. Well, and, and it frankly and it, and it might be your waiter and it's one of those things right. where like I don't I don't expect someone to have all the answers, but I expect someone in the restaurant to have all the answers. And I obviously am, you know, and kind of a wine nerd, and I'm a nitpicky, and I'm going to ask lots of questions. But someone who might not know a ton may still want to ask a lot of questions because they want to make a decision, and they shouldn't. They shouldn't feel rushed. They shouldn't feel hounded. They shouldn't feel like someone's talking down to them. I mean, I, there's a whole rule. There's a set of rules about your your rights as a wine customer, and it's like restaurants in the U.S. typically charge twice the price of retail for a wine, and I don't have a problem with that. But for that money. I want someone to do their job, and their job is to help me find my path to pleasure when I'm looking for a wine in a restaurant. And if they can't do that, then they're not doing their job, and then I feel really angry about the fact that I'm paying twice what it costs. And I, I, I get what their, I get what their economic realities are. I understand the economics of restaurants well enough to know, like, you know, you you are supposed to pay more because you are getting more, but I expect <clears throat> to get it. And I think everyone, even if you don't know that much should expect to get it. They should expect to be treated with respect. Right. That's the job, and you should be guided properly. Yeah. And that's not a sommelier thing. Like, again, that's... that's, yeah. that's because not every restaurant has a sommelier. Yeah, and a lot of them don't. So it's like, okay, and I don't... And have good wine lists. Right. And, even if it's one page. Know, and a server may not know everything. You know, he may have shown up, and, you know, he's still learning. But, like, someone in that place should know. Right. All right. Um, we're going to talk to Stephen... Bitteroff from Riesling Fair in a couple of minutes. Vitor's going to get him on the line. Before we get to him, I want to subject John to our uh, wine list. John had been on the show about a year ago and did one, so we're doing Chapter 2. This is the new wine rules version, all right? Perfect. So the first question then and now is, what are you drinking now? And that's what you're working on and what you're drinking through. And I'm going to make a guess and say French wines. Yeah, a lot of French wine. I mean, like I said, it's been, you know, it's been a January to uh, to taper a little bit. But, right. That um, aside. But, uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of French wines. <clears throat> we just did some Bordeaux. And, and that was a pleasure uh, to, 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 I mean, revisit because I spent about three weeks there last year. Uh, but to to see the quality of what's there kind of under the radar um I mean, Bordeaux drinking. not being the big, expensive, fancy. The yeah. fact that there's some good wines and some good value. I mean, we just we just did a a, a crib sheet for punch that was where I think I mean everything. Give was me one or two. 30. What did we love? I mean, we love the the I cha- just looked at it today. Chateau de Chandetray, uh, which is uh, which is 
um, sort of way out at the outer edge, but it's uh, it's property owned by a guy who used to work for Ponte Canet, and I think it's nineteen dollars. Wow. Um, the Give me um, one more. the Chateau Moulin de Trico, which is one of Rosenthal's uh, kind of really old school properties. Um, they're they're in Margot, but they also make an Omedoc, which is like unbelievably good for I think twenty eight or twenty nine dollars. Incredible. So you can drink great Bordeaux. Yeah. I'll post those on our site. Um, we talked about this just a few minutes ago. I think maybe you had to fine-tune it or hone it a little more. I asked you this question a year ago. Favorite wine and food pairing. Has it changed? Is it a tough question to answer? Has it always been the same? Yeah, it's, it's you know, it's the problem of being omnivorous. Uh, I mean, what I mentioned just before was... Omnivorous I don't even, or carnivorous? Omnivorous. Okay. Uh, no, because <clears throat> vegetables and wine is important, and it's sort of overlooked. Uh, I mean, the sushi and red burgundy, as I mentioned. I don't That's know a good what, one. Yeah, I don't know what my last question, my, my last answer was. I forgot to um, look it up. But... Um, one that I mentioned in the book that I always adore is a lot of both Sichuan and Shanxi cooking, um, where obviously using Sichuan peppercorns, but also Spicy. using um, using a lot of chili, but using it in a very sort of smoky way. It's it's a lot of kind of dry, with, dry cooking um, with uh, Cabernet Franc, right? Uh, because of the spiciness and Cabernet, yeah, too. yeah, and and it's just and again to my point that there's there's cuisines that don't intrinsically have wine uh, as part of their culture that there are wines that go beautifully with. Right. Good ones. Um, some restaurants, this was one of the questions, but it's revised a little. Some restaurants that do all things wine well. So their focus is on wine. Can you name a few favorites in New York or, you know, that really stand out as far as selection, sure. service, price? Um, I mean, some things that I love right now, I love uh, I, to... Um, known to known to heritage radio, uh, heritage radio folks, um, I love what Joe Campanelli is uh, doing at Fausto. Yes. I feel like he's found this great way to take like his own interests, a little bit of natural, a lot of Italian, and find this perfect balance. Uh, I love. I mean, I've always you know we we spend a lot of time at Marta and now at Vignet Friedi. Um, because the champagnes are so sparkling, well priced, the champagne, and it's just this this perfect way to to, to our discussion about exploring champagne. Yep. Uh, to get and there. reasonable stuff too. Exactly. Um, I love uh, some of the expansion of Terroir's list right now, um, and uh, there was somewhere else that I was just looking at, and I'm blanking on it. So I'm our gonna... friend uh, Kimberly went over to Scampi. Mm-hmm. and has an interesting list. I'll huh. throw that one in. Yeah. Um, those are good ones. I'll list those. Right now, favorite wine region? It's not the Loire, is it? I drink a lot of Loire. Right now, uh, not all time, and you know, you'll know you come back for the new French wine. Yeah, It'll exactly. be different, but what would you say right now? Um, I mean, right now, it's probably between, it's probably between the... The Loire and Champagne, and some, you know, some of it is just getting to revisit those little bit. Champagne was had a couple weird vintages, and now like the 12, 13, 14 base vintages are so good. 12, 13, 14 in Champagne, because 11 sucked, right? Yeah. 11 sucked, but now we're into like a lot of 12 base wines. Good stuff. So good. Okay. All right. We asked you this question last time, and we sort of broached it a little, but let's get specific. Best wine around 15 bucks, 15 to 20 bucks. Give me a white, give me a red. You can go category, you can go specifics, you can go both. Um, 
You got into the I book mean, a little. Yeah, you know, I mean, white. I'm gonna I'm gonna fall back on Muscadet. Muscadet, we're already good talking answer. About Give it. me a couple of um, makers that you like. Uh, in that realm, I mean, Marc Olivier is always amazing. Right. Luno Pepin, uh, really, I mean, the quality they do, you could you could easily outdrink Chablis, like Grand Cru Chablis with some of their wines. Right. Um, and red wine, um, I mean, um, if you if you look at um, Sommer Champagny, I think has overtaken. Samor um, is Loire. Is Central Loire. S A U S A U M U R. One M. One M. All right. Um, so Samor wines. Kind of its 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 suburbs, places like Notre Dame de Puy, um, where it's it's different than Chinon and Bourgogne, but right. it's still really interesting Cabernet Franc. Right. So those are good ones. All right, John, sit here for a minute with me. I'm going to get Stephen Bitteroff on the phone. Stephen owns Von Boden, which is a German wine importer, and he is also the founder of Riesling Fair, Fair, however you pronounce it, he'll tell me, um, which is an event coming up in New York. Vitor, do we have uh, Stephen on the line? Yep, I'm here. Stephen, how are you, man? We finally got this together. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for, uh, for your patience, yeah. It's like to be here. Hey, John. Hey, how are you? I was just going to say, say hello to John. I, I should have said Riesling. Yes. Riesling's <laughs> always a good answer. I was listening. All right, so I wanted to get you on because I know you're passionate about German wines, Riesling. You've launched Riesling. How do you pronounce it? Fair? Fair? Yeah, Fire. Fire. So fire. Riesling Fire. Yeah. Quickly tell us what Riesling Fire is and how it came about. Yeah, for sure. It was, you know, I mean, it's kind of unabashedly uh, aping Daniel Jonas's La Palais, which, you know, is uh, is an American version of a, a French kind of harvest celebration that's happened. Uh, and the idea was really just to get, um, you know, to get people who love German wines. And at this point, it's expanded to kind of include the whole Teutonic sphere in there. So uh, this year we have Jean Trimbach coming, so Alsace will hopefully become a bigger and bigger part of it. Last year, there are a number of Austrians there. So it's kind of Austria, Germany, Alsace, you know, the sort of right. it's expanded the origin, the homeland of, of, of Riesling, as it were. And it really was just an idea to get a bunch of people uh, together in a room who really love these wines. I think they have, you know, I think to some extent, this this region of the world and these wines, because of their specificity and the vineyard detail and all this stuff, they attract the geeks in the same way I think Burgundy did right. 20 years ago. Not that it doesn't now, but also attracts... Uh, different people as well with different motives. So I think it's that same sort of, you know, love of the details and the, you know, the kind of desire to get the, together with people who also have this kind of addiction, illness, passion. Right. So the the fair takes place January, what's the date? Yeah, it's Saturday, January 27th. Which is coming and every up. every year, uh, it's different producers, different events. Uh, Let's talk about the events. Tra- travel schedules and everything. It is only Saturday, January 27th, and there's really two big events. Um, one is the gala dinner, which is a kind of fancy sit-down dinner, you know, with five courses, and all the growers are attending, and they bring kind of um, fancy bottles from their cellars, and all the guests do as well, and it's just a sort of Bacchanalian dinner that's a lot, a lot of fun. That so the guests, wait, the guests um, bring wine. We're, you know, what's that? The guests bring wine, plus the guests bring wine, plus you the winemakers wine. bring wine. Right. I mean, it's it's over the top. Like said, I had the first year we did it, which was 2013. Um, you know, there were a number of growers, but Katarina Prune from uh, from JJ Prune and Klaus Peter Keller were both there, who have you know had at this point really long careers, and at that point it had long careers and had drank a lot of wine. And both of them said to me that night they'd never been in a room with right. so much kind of historic 
right. German wine in the room. So it's a it's a it's a really fun kind of indulgent evening. Uh, and then the other event is called the Grand Tasting, and that really is you know it's trying to get to for people who don't want to spend three hundred dollars and bring a fancy a fancy bottle of wine and don't want to sit down for a long meal. Uh, but really, you know, either one want to taste the wines, want to get to know the growers, and or want to kind of learn about about German wines and what kind of Riesling can be. Um, it's a thirty-three dollar ticket that gets you in the door to taste with fourteen growers. You know, be somewhere between forty and fifty wines, um, and that's going to take place during the afternoon, um, just Saturday, January twenty-seventh at Kraft. So, so kind that, of right in the middle. That sounds of, like a good deal in the middle of Manhattan, um, and it's just a great way to yeah. To kind of you know either either meet the growers and taste the wines for the tenth time, or to uh, or to to do it for the first time. So that that's a walk around. So you can walk around right. different tables, different growers. A lot of the growers yep. are going to be there. You're focusing on the 2016 vintage, right? Exactly right. Yep. Yeah. And, Every single reason fire grower will be there. And- right. Do we still have Stephen on the line? You there, Stephen? Uh-oh, technical difficulties. All right, we're going to call him back. Um, we'll get him back on the line, but now's a good time to ask John, who is still sitting here. John, if we want to get the book, um, and we mentioned this earlier, but I want to be official about it, um, Amazon? Amazon is great. Barnes & Noble is great. Yeah, in your local independent bookseller. Have seller. you gotten good participation we have from you know booksellers. We and all have. Of that. Uh, it's been. It was interesting to look at the numbers and whereas what they call online was, I think, much a much bigger portion of um, of what the New California did. And online doesn't mean like BarnesandNoble.com. dot com. Right. Means Amazon. People were only online. Right. Uh, this time we had a lot of pickup from from the bookstores, and I think that's great. And uh, I mean, I'm not. You know, it's not to be obvious about it, but we we designed the book to be something that that people could kind of browse and pick right. up, and uh, and that uh, that you know wasn't kind of hidden away on uh, on the the culinary shelf, but that that would be interesting enough that someone could could get into it without feeling like they had to be a wine geek. Now, have you and are you hitting the road? Um promoting a tiny bit uh so far you've done uh, it we're here. we're easing into it uh in fact i have to to start sorting that out i think in the spring uh we're gonna try to to get out on the road get to the okay. west coast but also i i really want to get to some cities in the midwest uh, i've talked to a number of folks and i think you know i mean hit the, certain markets well, touch touch those markets new york is awesome you know sure we'll be in la and san francisco but right. i also think there's there's a lot of places where uh, you know, that you know, frankly, wine, wine writers, you know, are a, a, a slightly uh, uh, a, a slightly travel. <laughs> I wouldn't say travel averse. We 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 don't get out of our out of our zone too often. So I feel like it would be good to to get out a little farther and really get to some of the the interesting booksellers, the interesting restaurants that are out there. I mean, like Minneapolis, I've been super excited to go to three or four places there. Yeah, it's there. a good market. And It's uh, funny you say you travel averse, because for research and, you know, for the base of the books, you travel your ass we, off. We, we, go, we go everywhere that there's vines, but when it comes right. to, to, Pe- uh, to everywhere else, it's weird how we don't seem to, to wander very far. People. Vitor, do we have Steven back on the line? Yes, I'm back. Sorry about that. You bastard, you hung up on me. <laughs> Remind me when I s- me. remind me of this when I see you. All right. 
Don't worry about it. All right, let's finish up. Um, so we have Riesling Fire, January 27th, right? That's a Saturday. Yep. There's the gala dinner, and there's yep. a walk-around tasting. Um, you said the dinner's sold out. Are there a few tickets left for the tastings? There are. So the, the way we do the tasting, just to make it kind of a... Uh as manageable and kind of not crowded as possible as we do. We sell tickets for different sessions. So the first three sessions are sold out. So that's okay. from 1030 in the morning to, for some reason, that's always the one that sells out first. Which I think people think on. they have to get but, there uh, early. It's, you know, reasoning is the, the breakfast, the breakfast <laughs> wine. Um, so we have tickets available uh, for the third session, which is 130 to 230 on Saturday, January 27th. And as I said, tickets are 33 bucks, and that's you know every single Reason Fire grower will be there. So there's 14 this year, right? Um, and focusing mostly on the 2016 vintage, but you know there are often there are often some surprises. All right, before I let you go, um, two things. The first thing is when did your obsession with these Teutonic wines start, and how? When did it, you know, probably right, honestly, right at the beginning of my, my drinking career, which was, you know, jumped right into was, it was something <laughs> was, uh, you know, in the late nineties. Uh, and the reason was, you know, because one, they're affordable, uh, right. two, there's, there's just so much versatility and there's so much, there's such a broad spectrum, you know, and it's with, with kind of everything. I think the, you know, the, the deeper it goes, kind of the more fun it is. So there's just a lot to learn. Right. Um, and so, you know, so it was, it was right from, it was kind of white right from the beginning. And it was as, it was as a consumer, it was just like shopping around, trying to find good wine, uh, for the, for the, for the dollar, you know, good wine, good values. Right. And then, you know, there's just such a culture, there's such a history behind it. There's, there's so many details. There's so, there's so much to learn and that, that kind of fueled the fire and, you know, still yeah. burning bright. I'd hate to be a Merlot drinker on a life raft with you and Paul Greco. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> well, probably... you would have you would have plenty of Merlot to drink, <laughs> right? Yeah, I'd probably get exactly. chucked up. All right, Stephen. One last thing: if anybody yeah. wants more information on uh, Riesling Fire, it's R I E S L I N G F E I E R. Um, what's the? That's the spelling. What's the site for people? Yeah, so the site is that. So it's, you know, the, the grape Riesling. And then fire is, as you said, F-E-I-E-R. Right. Uh, and that's like a, it's a slightly more formal word for celebration. You know, you have Oktoberfest, right. which is, you know, the party. Uh, fire is a little bit more the celebration. So the website is just that, okay. www.rieslingfire.com. Obviously on Twitter and Instagram and, you know, all those, uh, all those social media pages. But, you know, if right. you Google Riesling Festival, Riesling Fire, Everything you'll, you'll probably up. find us. All right, and you are also a, what would you say an importer distributor of a uh, lot importer, of yeah. importer of a lot of fine uh, German and more winemakers, which is a nice thing. Yeah. So you're totally engrossed in this. Um, exactly. I want to thank you for coming on. I wanted to give a little shout out to the fair because I'm also a big Riesling fan. Awesome. So thanks. we hope to see you there, and good luck with everything. And thank you for jumping on. Cool. Thank you very much, Sam. I appreciate the I appreciate the time and the effort. Yep. Yeah. So spread the good word, and you know, the last my last message is just bring Riesling to uh, bring German wines to dinner parties. There that's you go. The, that's the way to do it because the you know the people who know the specialists they're the ones who need to convince people because when people drink the wines and they don't know their German wines they love them. 
there's just such a strong bias against you know I, conceptions of what they think the wines are. So no, you're right. I want to make a bumper. I want to make a bumper sticker. Bring bring Riesling to dinner parties. We're not there yet. That's why we got to <laughs> keep promoting this. So exactly. All right. Thanks, exactly. Stephen. See All you right. soon. Thanks so much, guys. Have a great one. Thanks, All John. Right. You too. Thanks. All right. We're going to wrap up soon, but I wanted to ask John one more question, and the question is. You have used the word new in all your books, okay? Weirdly so. Yeah. So I think you probably have a definition. In your mind, what is the new wine? I think you got into it with California. I think you're going to unravel it with uh, France. And I think you approach this book. But what's John Bonet, you know, Bonet's new wine so we, when when I started writing with uh, with Punch, we we set out a first column uh, in which we we knew we knew we needed to, to sort of reset the parameters, and so I wrote a column about uh, what I called the new mainstream, uh, and the new mainstream is basically there is no mainstream. Everything is 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 so subdivided and diverse and. Uh, and really different and changing and evolving that you can't say, well, these are the old wines and these are the new wines because you find these very traditional old wine regions. We've talked about a ton of them. Could be Chianti, could be, uh, you know, um, Piedmont, could be uh, the Loire, Bordeaux, wherever that uh, that we think of as old, but in fact, the changes that are there and the rate of change is so astonishingly fast. Uh, and that was that was the lesson that I got in California, where everyone thought California was kind of a little old and tired, and yet it was it was under this in in the midst of this transformative revolution. And so I think the new wine is something that can happen anywhere. it's It's a matter of simply realizing that wine has a very long tail of memory and reputation. People think about what used to be, and wine itself, which is when you go out in the field and you go in the cellars, wine moves much faster. And so the new, the new is, of course, very convenient uh, right. to use in a title. Uh, but, but, it, but it basically is, is looking at, um, at what, what is coming next, what is on the horizon at, at change. Uh, and and that's important, and it's important to understand that things aren't as set in stone as we'd like them to be. Right. Um, you have you are currently working on the new French wine. I am. I talked to you earlier about this. I thought maybe it was coming out this year, but it'll be out sometime in 2019. It will be out fall 2019. Okay. For a variety of reasons, but uh, one, okay. it's there's a lot of France to cover. Would you come back on and talk about that book? I would love to. All right. Um, if you have a question, wine happening or event, hit me up at Sam at thegrapenation.com. That's Sam at thegrapenation.com. Follow us on Facebook at The Grape Nation. Uh, we'll list a lot of the wines that John talked about on our Facebook page on the site. Um, you can follow us on Instagram at SBenRuby and at hashtag the Great Nation. You now can follow hashtags on Instagram, and we have two sites, SBenRuby and the Great Nation. On Twitter, at BenRuby. Um, John, we talked about where we can get the book. It's readily available. And where can we follow you? Because you're all over the place, and it's fun <laughs> to follow you on social media. Yeah. Um, you could always find uh, many of my articles, not all of them, at punchdrink.com. Right, we didn't find... talk about that much. That's all right. Punch. Uh, 
punchdrink.com. Punchdrink.com. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at jbonet. At jbonet. Um, I've been scanning through Punch the last week just to catch up and also to prepare. I mean... The frequency of how much you write, what you write about. I mean, you could pretty much stay in the game if you just followed John about what's going on, trends. He talks about 2017. He talks about 2018. He gets specific with a lot of wines. He talks about Cabernets, Bordeaux, their selections. So it really is a wealth of information. There's great perspective. Um, and there's incredible frequency, and not to the point where you know it wears thin or this guy's saying the same thing over. It's really great stuff, and thank you know, you. I recommend people to go there. All right, we want to thank our jet guest, John Bonet. Um, thank you to our engineer, Vitor, and everyone at the Heritage Radio Network. Also, thanks to Stephen Bitteroff for calling in for a couple of minutes to talk about Riesling Fair coming up in New York City on January 27th. I'm Sam Ben Ruby, and you have been listening to The Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network food radio supported by you for our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events subscribe to our newsletter enter your email at the bottom of our website heritageradionetwork.org connect with us on facebook instagram and twitter at heritage underscore radio heritage radio network is a non-profit organization driving conversations to make the world a better fairer more delicious place and we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.